anything who comes in the name of the Lord, they said. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. However, even in that moment of joy and excitement, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, rebuke your disciples. And he said, I tell you, if they keep quiet, even the stones will cry out. And we've just been singing about that, you know, the stones will cry out, the rocks will proclaim the glory of God. Well, welcome this morning. It's good to have you with us. We do want to welcome everyone here. Um, I would normally, perhaps in other circumstances, get you to stand up and move around, but you're all settled and at peace at the moment. So it would appear. I don't know about you, there are some occasions, and perhaps today is one of them for some people. It's the first day back for Kids Church today. And so there's a whole lot of organisation that has to take place before you actually get to church. And then, um, as you're about to get into the car, someone needs to go to the toilet, or you realise that someone spilt their breakfast on themselves. And there's arguments between the children as you're coming along to church. And then you realise that you didn't bring something that you needed, so you've got to go back again. Have you ever had one of those mornings where it's just an uphill battle, isn't it? But we're here. And we can be still before the Lord and give thanks for his presence amongst us and welcome everyone who is here. And it is good to be together. I want to especially welcome somebody we've been waiting for for some time. And Francine's very excited because Emil's here after many, many, many months of waiting for a visa for him to be able to arrive and be with his family. And so we greet you in the name of the Lord, Emil. It's lovely to have you with us. Um, welcome. And, and <laughs> Francine's probably very embarrassed, but it's lovely to see a family united after such a long time and we give praise to God for that. So welcome to you and welcome to everyone else. To those who are on the live stream today, uh, we welcome you as well. And I just want to make mention of the fact that our resources are very, very stretched just at the moment. We've got a number of people who are out of action, either with COVID or because of isolation. And so we're kind of trying to make do with the people that we have. And Richard's running around trying to do the sound for here as well as the sound on the live stream which are quite different animals so um, you can all hear me yes fantastic I can hear me too actually it's quite good um, for the people on the live stream if it's a little bit sketchy today then uh, we will just have to manage and it's one of the uh, the challenges that we do face with um, the way things are with restrictions at the moment I'll explain a little more about that over the next few weeks. Uh, you'll notice on the back wall here um, a new backdrop. Bethlehem was retired through the week, uh, as was the aeroplane that was up there. If anyone remembers, I'm not sure what I did with that. I thought I had it in my pocket, but it's gone. Uh, our new series that we're going to start through this next season of life in our church is one from the book of Judges. Probably not <coughs> a book that typically preachers would turn to because... There's some quite challenging passages there, some great stories, no doubt, but uh, we're going to do the scriptures justice by working our way through them and ask the question, what does faith look like in times of apostasy? which is very much the experience of uh, the time of the judges where the people, and we'll look at that this morning, where the people turned away from the Lord and embraced the, the gods of the Canaanites. And what is God's response in that space? And what does that mean for us in our time? Now today, just to give you the heads up, we're going to have a crack at Judges chapter 1 and chapter 2. It's a big chunk of scripture. And so we'll work our way through that um, as I come to the message in just a few moments. There has been a few technical 
challenges this morning too, so I'm hoping there's a message here. <laughs> I checked last night and there was only half of one, so I think I've amended that little problem. Uh, well done too, just while I think of it, to all of those who joined us on Thursday for the men's and women's coffee morning. You might have seen some photographs in the newsletter of some folks who were able to gather and bless the business, the little lane cafe. I think we had 44 people there across um, the morning. The men predominantly migrated upstairs and the ladies stayed outside in the cool outdoors, uh, but it was a great time to be together and catch up. We'll continue to plan things like that from time to time as we're able to, uh, that we might um, bless others, but also enjoy gathering together. There is um, uh, some other changes too in terms of, uh, as I said, our resources are a bit stretched. I did say in the newsletter today that our coffee cart would be operating. Unfortunately, um, staffing's um, been a challenge. However, thanks to Kerry and Foodshare, we've got about 70 bottles of iced coffee in the fridge that are in date ready to use, so if you need an iced coffee after the service, we'll make sure that's available. <laughs> There's one or two people would be happy with that, and one or two might bounce off the walls if they had that. That's why we didn't put it out before the service. <laughs> uh, but we'll make those available and uh, provide morning tea in time. In fact, one of the things we do need to talk about in time is, um, is rebooting our rosters because uh, we've had some people who've been very gracious and have served on our door welcoming and greeting and signing people in. We'll need to build some teams around that, some folks who can greet, people who can help us prepare morning tea, communion and the likes. We'll um, put some of that information into our newsletter shortly as we uh, reconvene in a more normal way through this year. We are going to serve and share communion this morning. Uh, you'll see it's kind of a bit of a split um, arrangement again, uh, but we will be coming forward to take communion when you do so. Just uh, at the time, come down the centre aisle, take either the pre-packaged communion that uh, is available or the bread and the cup from the other side. It's not these people have to take this one and those people have to take that one. That's not the case. Uh, and then we'll go back to our seats. But we'll come to that towards the end of our service. Our night service um, is on again tonight for those who are able to join us. Um, we really do need some help tonight in terms of um, I haven't got anyone on the roster except myself. And so the threat is um, I'll be leading the singing without musical accompaniment. <laughs> And I'll be yelling because I haven't got anyone on the um, sound desk at the moment or the, um, uh, or the presenter desk. So if there's anyone who's got skills in that area and feels that they would like to offer those, then please come and talk to me afterwards. It'll just make my afternoon a little less stressful. I would value that very much. Let's pray and acknowledge that even in the face of all of the challenges that there are, we are deeply blessed and there's much to be thankful for. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we're thankful that you are here amongst us today. Your spirit is active, speaking to us, challenging us, contending with thoughts that might not be of yours and not belong to you, opening us to what you want to say to us, challenging us, growing us, shaping us, extending us, conforming us to the likeness of Christ. And we give you praise. We thank you, Lord, that church is not about us, it's about service of you. And we come to a service today, not to be served, but to serve. 
And so help us adopt that posture, we pray today, Lord, as we come and look for opportunities to serve you, to give you praise and glory, to encourage one another, to build up those around us, to edify those whom we gather with. We pray that you will help us to step out of our comfort zone, perhaps, or perhaps even to move away from the way we might normally operate and be people who will build up and encourage and strengthen the body of Christ and where we see a need be prepared to step into it even if it's not necessarily the thing that we are most adept at or skilled at or uh, able to do we recognize Lord that we can serve you in all sorts of ways and it's not always uh, in the in the sweet spot that we have it might be in other areas Lord we pray again today for our church, for those who are not able to be with us. We recognise again, Lord, there are some who are just um, concerned about well-being, and so we lift them before you, take any fear and anxiety from their hearts. We're mindful, Lord, that there are others who are in isolation or currently unwell, and we lift those folks before you too, God, and pray that they might know your strength and your hands for those who are caring for them, supporting them, looking after them. Lord, bless them too. We're thankful, Lord, for our kids' church being able to restart today after a break over the Christmas summer holidays. And we pray for the team there too, though slightly depleted. We are mindful, Lord, that uh, you are blessing our children as they gather and what a blessing it is. We ask, Lord, that they might be enriched by the love of those who are serving and sharing and that the team, the whole team, whether they're able to serve at the moment or not, will sense your call and your unity even during this time. Father, we pray for our evening service. We thank you for the gathering last week, the first one for a long time. In fact, the first one since August last year. And for the great encouragement it was to see so many young adults and so many young people gather and worship you and be together in your presence and so we pray that you'll bless that space too father as we come to your word this morning we ask that you would enlighten us that you would grant to us insights into what you're saying even beyond what i will say but may the words of my mouth uh, be your words and the meditations of our hearts be focused on you we pray and so watch over us we ask in jesus name Amen. I wonder if you've ever given any thought to uh, why it is, let's just see if we can get a slide up here, why it is that the Hume Dam wall has a dog leg in it. Has anyone ever given any thought to that? It's not a perspective we typically get, the aerial perspective. But why is there a dog leg there on what's the western end back towards the Ebden end? It has got something to some, Wendy said strength, it has got something to do with strength. Um, maybe, maybe you've never thought about it, I've thought about it because every engineer I know is a person who loves straight lines. <laughs> Square and straight, strong and nice and neat, triangulation, all that kind of stuff. But in fact, it turns out that when the engineers were building the Hume Dam, which of course captures the, uh, the water of the Murray and the Midder, and as far as I know, this is the only photograph of the confluence of those two rivers, uh, they, uh, they 
figured they had to find a place that was going to be strong enough to actually build the wall and the wall had to be anchored to something solid. And so they looked in a number of places, they drilled something in the order of about 185 test bores to see what was under the ground and the place where the wall is currently is the best place. And what they discovered was that about 10 metres down under the dirt and soil and broken rock was bedrock. Granite, good solid stuff. And so it made sense to anchor the wall and they actually built on the Victorian side and you can see it here on what's the uh, right hand side of the picture, a solid core concrete wall which is now covered by dirt. In fact, uh, have we got a pointer here? Uh, the top here, where I'm pointing to just at the moment, you might be wondering where that tower is. Well, actually, uh, the road is currently about where that pointer is. So you can see just how deep it goes down, how high it was built up. And the concrete wall they built uh, was anchored down into the bedrock, and so it had to follow the bedrock. And rather unfortunately for the engineers, the bedrock took a slight turn towards the end on the Victorian side, and so they had to follow it, which kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Now you might be wondering why on earth um, is David talking about the Hume Dam when we've come to Judges? And that's a good question. A really um, obvious spiritual application would be in life we need to anchor ourselves in something solid, right? But that's not what I want to talk about. Because what I want to talk about is my, one of my favourite topics, geography. Now I just heard a little kind of a <laughs> groan go through uh, the congregation. What, what is going on here? Who loves geography? Yes, I have some friends. Uh, that's good. I'm not going to ask the corresponding question because I don't want anyone to be embarrassed. <laughs> But right now there's a few of you who are at risk of glazing over and turning off your minds because geography is not everyone's favourite topic, I understand that. However, uh, geography is really significant in terms of our understanding of the Bible because geography influences history in all sorts of interesting and wonderful ways. In fact, um, one, of the, uh, the, one of the probably the most enlightening, exciting things about the trip that I did to Israel a few years ago was understanding how geography influenced how the people of Israel lived. And the photo that's up here on the wall is of the city of Bet Shan. Now, I've put this one up this morning because it's actually mentioned in the text that we're going to look at. Keep an ear out for Bet Shan. It's a city that was located geographically so you might need to take over here, I can't advance the slide, here we go. If we have a look at it from, uh, from space, uh, Bet Shan is here at the intersection of the Jordan Valley running here from the Sea of Galilee right down to the Dead Sea and the Jezreel Valley, two of the most important uh, highways, if you like, that people would move through. Some of the richest agricultural um, land, and again, Zoe, you're going to have to do this for me, uh, rich agricultural land, but militarily very, very strategic. And so if you built your city at that junction between those two valleys, you controlled an enormous area. So geography is important, right? Really important. And as we come to that, um, we are going to think about what that means as we read through these couple of passages, which are, in fact, a summary of lots and lots of geography, if you like, which we can tend to kind of just ignore or glaze over at. 
but actually there's some really significant messages that God wants us to understand through these introductory passages to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 1 and chapter 2. And I'm going to give you four things to hang your hats on this morning. First of all, uh, very briefly, uh, this passage talks about God's desire for unity, the unity of his people. Secondly, significantly, of God's desire for justice and God's, uh, God's character that not only desires justice but actually makes sure that justice is done. The third one, perhaps not an easy one, God's jealous nature. You have thought about how God is a jealous God and we'll talk a little bit about God's incredible salvation that we see here in this passage and then use that to launch from there into communion this morning. But let's start at Judges chapter 1 verse 1 and I'm going to read um, the first four verses, make some comments and we're going to keep kind of reading our way through this passage. So stick with me. If you've got it open, it will be helpful. Keep your ears peeled for Bet Shan because it is mentioned here. But also... Um, just some of the wonderful kind of insights that the author gives to us here. It starts here in Judges chapter 1 verse 1, which incidentally starts in a very similar way to the book of Joshua. If you flick back to Joshua chapter 1, it says, after the death of Moses, the story continued. Here in Judges chapter 1 verse 1, after the death of Joshua, the story continues. God's work uh, continues. After the death of Joshua, Judges chapter 1 verse 1, the Israelites asked the Lord, who of us is to go up and first, uh, to, sorry, who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah shall go up. I have given the land into their hands. The men of Judah then said to the Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, come up with us to the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We will, uh, sorry, we in turn will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. Now that's an interesting kind of an introduction, isn't it? It's not just a nice sentiment that's expressed there. It's not like uh, the men of Judah said to their mates, hey, listen, we're going up for a Barney. Do you want to come along and you know, get stuck into them with us? This was an example of God's people working together in cooperation. If you look further down in this passage, you'll find that the favour was in fact returned. What we've got in this passage is not some sort of sloppy sentimentalism. It was actually an example of the unity that God wanted to see and wants to see amongst his people right here at the start of their life together as the nation. Um, next Sunday, I'll be speaking at the church in Epsom, a church that I've been helping find a pastor. They're inducting their new pastor. Yay for me. Um, that means my job will be finished. And their new pastor has asked if I'd speak at his induction, which is a great privilege. And so my, uh, my question is, what do I speak about at the induction of a pastor? And I thought I'd be able to say some things here that I can't say in Wodonga. Uh, so, for instance, what I'm going to talk about is how you as the church actually have an awful lot to do with whether the pastor thrives or not as we cooperate, not just in the ministry that, uh, that we are engaged in together, but in our life together in Christ. It's impossible, I put it to you, it's impossible to fully understand the depth and the extent of God's love in isolation from community and in 
isolation from that unity that God wants for us. If you come with me to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 to 19, Paul said, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he, speaking of God, may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power. And this is the kicker. Together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Fully understanding and appreciating the staggering extent of God's love is not something we can do in isolation from other people. It can only be done in the context of community and the unity uh, and the fellowship of God's people is not some kind of hippie idea that we aspire to. It's actually core to who we are as God's people. And so it's worth protecting and it's worth investing in. It's worth focusing on. Our God was and is committed to the unity of his people. Let's go back to the text. And uh, this is a chunk I'm going to read through. Please uh, forgive me if I mispronounce some of the names, but I'm suspecting that most of you will be glad you're not the ones up here reading it, so we'll see how we go. Verse 4, when Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. It was there that they found Adonai Bezek and fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they chased him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Then Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. That's kind of an interesting little snapshot, isn't it? Here's this king who previously has gone around creating havoc wherever he's gone, uh, cutting off the thumbs and the big toes of anyone that he has conquered. It happens to him. In a sense, <laughs> in a really strange kind of a sense, uh, what we have here is him saying, yeah, well, I've kind of got what I deserved, I suppose. The men of Judah attacked Jerusalem and also took it. They put the city to the sword and set it on fire. After that, Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country, the Negev and the western foothills. They advanced against the Canaanites living in Hebron, formerly called Kiriath Arba, and defeated Sheshai, Ahiman and Talmai. From there, they advanced against the people living in Debir, formerly called Kiriath Sephar. And Caleb said... I'll give my daughter Aksar in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kiriath Sephir. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So Caleb gave his daughter Aksar uh, to him in marriage. One day, when she came to Othniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field. When she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, what can I do for you? She replied, whoops, I don't know what she replied. I think I've missed that. Sorry. Uh, do me a special favour since you have given me land in the Negev. Give me also springs of water. So Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. Funny little insert into the story too, isn't it? What's that all about? It's not all that significant, you wouldn't think. But here's the thing. These little stories are kind of dropped into the narrative as a reminder that when God's people follow God's plan, they always have stories to tell. There's always stories to tell. I look back, and we've done this just recently, you know, chatting to people, look back at, at the experience we've had over these years in ministry. There's always stories to tell because God's always at work in funny little ways. 
let's move on uh, to the next section here. Verse 16, the descendants of Moses' father-in-law, the Kenite, went up from the city of Palms <coughs> with the people of Judah to live among the inhabitants of the desert of Judah in the Negev near Arad. Then the men of Judah went with the Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, and attacked the Canaanites living in Zaphar, and they totally destroyed the city. And therefore it was called Hormah. Judah also took Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ekron, each city with its territory. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. As Moses had promised, Hebron was given to Caleb, who drove it from the three sons of Anak. <clears throat> the Benjamites, however, and take notice the pattern that's starting to emerge here, did not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjamites. Now the tribes of Joseph attacked Bethel and the Lord was with them when they sent a man to spy out Bethel, formerly called Luz. The spy saw a man coming out of the city and they said to him, show us how to get into the city and we'll see that you are treated well. So he showed them and they put the city to the sword but spared the man and his whole family. He then went to the land of the Hittites where he built a city and called it Luz, which is its name to this day. Now is your head spinning yet? That's a lot of information. Not only is there a risk of our head spinning in this moment, there's a risk of us becoming a little bit, um, how would we say this, perhaps uneasy, uncomfortable perhaps, because it looks an awful lot like uh, the Israelites are involved in what in modern day terms might even be called genocide. What do you do with that? The question, and I've been asked this question many times over the years, is how do we reconcile the, the violence and <clears throat> this conquering kind of posture that God encouraged his people to take with the New Testament and the love of God and the compassion and grace and mercy of God? Judges chapter 1 raises for us, and we might as well deal with it today, uh, what's known as the moral problem of the conquest. How horrible it is that these Israelites butchered the Canaanites, the people who were in the land. <coughs> How terrible it is that they wrought havoc and misery <coughs> me, and stole their land, all apparently at the behest of the Lord. God was blessing them in that space. If only the Canaanites knew how much emotional support they got from modern day people, they'd be very encouraged, wouldn't they? And the fact is the conquest was brutal and frightful, but if we bemoan the fate of the Canaanites, we don't actually see the conquest through the lens of the scripture because one of the important factors that we're at risk of forgetting is that the Canaanites were not innocent at all. And our God is a God who is committed to justice. Back in Deuteronomy chapter four, uh, sorry, chapter nine, verses four to six, Moses made a statement that was at once about keeping the Israelites humble, but also descriptive of the Canaanites. This is what he said. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. 
It's not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going to take possession of the land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Understand, she said this three times, that it's not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God has given you this good land to possess, because you are actually a stiff-necked people. That's a pretty uh, humbling kind of a statement, isn't it? When I was, um, I think now it's almost 15 years ago, I was playing a bit of indoor netball with a friend. It was great fun and we did really well. We had lots of fun doing that. And at the end of the season, I can't remember, we ended up second or first, I'm not sure. We didn't get to play a grand final, which is disappointing. But my friend David, who, who played really well, he won the best and fairest. And then after he'd received his medal, he came to me and he said, you want to know something interesting, Dave? And I said, sure. He said, you were seventh on the best and fairest list (laughs) out of all of the competition. Seventh. That's not too bad. There was more than eight people too, just by the way. (laughs) I was kind of encouraged by that. But just imagine how you would feel if uh, you were part of a footy club or an indoor netball club or whatever it was and you were having the, the brown low count or whatever it is and, uh, and the f- person who got the most votes, they were scrubbed off because they'd, uh, they'd been reported and suspended for a week and the second person was scrubbed off because they'd been reported and so on and so on. You were the 21st person on the list but you hadn't been suspended so you win. How about that? Fantastic. I'm not sure that you'd actually go and celebrate it (laughs) because really what that's saying is you're just the best of a rotten bunch (laughs) and in some senses Moses was saying uh, God's giving you this land not because you're the best but because you're actually the best of a rotten bunch Uh, these Canaanites back to the Canaanites were a wicked people If uh, you're feeling that the Canaanites were hard done by, you want to go and check out Leviticus 18 or Deuteronomy chapter 18, which describe some of their practices. They were involved in things like child sacrifice, divination, witchcraft, sorcery, incest, sexual perversions of all kinds, prostitution. The list just goes on and on and on. It was incredible. And what we're actually witnessing when we see the destruction of the Canaanites through these chapters is not a bully like God sweeping all people before him, but a God who judges and a God who is just and a God who makes promise and says, I will judge, and he's doing it in this passage. These are not innocent people that God is sweeping before him to make room for his special nation, but the justice of God at work. And God has never allowed a rebellion to go unpunished, not then and not now either. At this point in history, Israel is actually God's instrument of judgment. A judgment on a people who had adopted all sorts of abominable practices and God will deal with that. God has to deal with that. The conquest never uh, says, uh, sorry, the Bible never claims the conquest was palatable, but it certainly claims it was just because our God is committed to justice. Well, as we continue uh, with the text, you might have noticed a kind of a disturbing little trend 
up to this point, this trend continues. Just watch what happens. And this is where our historical geography tends to kick in. Another chapter, uh, sorry, another chunk of scripture, this time from verse 27. But Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bet-Chan. There's a problem. They didn't gain control of that strategic city. Or Tanakh, or Dor, or Iblium, or Megiddo, and their surrounding settlements. For the Canaanites were determined to live in the land. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labour, but never drove them out completely. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Giza, but the Canaanites continued to live among them. Neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron or Nahalon. So these Canaanites lived among them, but Zebulon did subject them to forced labour. Nor did Asher drive out those living in Akko or Sidon or Achlab or Aksib or Helba or Afek or Rehob. You can find all these places on maps later if you like. The Asherites, let me give that next slide. Zoe, back to you. Uh, the Amorites confined the Danites to the hill country, not allowing them to come down into the plain. And the Amorites were determined also to hold out Mount Heres, Ajalon, and Shalbim. But when the power of the tribes of Joseph increased, they too were pressed into forced labour. The boundary of the Amorites was from Scorpion Pass to Sela and beyond. Now, again, we might normally skip over this when you're reading it, true? Because it's hard work. But there's something going on here which is of great consequence to the rest of the story of Judges and indeed Israel's history. And it's of great consequence because what appears on the surface to be insignificant, that is the driving of the people out of the land completely, uh, turns back on Israel in a really nasty way. Because what's happening is that by failing to fulfill God's command to fully drive out the people, the Israelites are sowing the seeds for spiritual apostasy, which we actually see in the next chapter. Does that make sense? They're allowing something to happen that fully develops later on, a compromise that we see in chapter 2. We'll move there. Chapter 2, verses uh, 10 to 13. After that, sorry, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtaroths. You can see how those decisions, how those compromises led to bigger compromise, spiritual compromise, which ended up polluting the people of Israel. A word quickly about Baal, you've probably heard that um, name. Uh, Baal was the fertility god of the Canaanites. Uh, for those of you who have young people, you might just want to block their ears because this is the R-rated part of the sermon. <laughs> Thanks, Miss. well done. Um, Baal was the fertility god 
And typically the Canaanites understood that the fertility of their crops or of their livestock, even of their families, was dependent on, on the blessing of Baal. And it happened in response to Baal having sexual relationship with his cohort or his consort, the Asherahs. And so uh, tied then into Canaanite worship was uh, ritual sexual practice in the hopes that it might arouse Baal to do the same. That's all I need to say. I think you get the message, right? If you need that described to you more explicitly later on, um, talk to one of the elders. That'd be really helpful. <laughs> you can imagine just how seductive uh, this religious practice is, or was, I should say, for the Israelites. You see, uh, the Canaanites who remained in the land continued the worship that they were familiar with, and it was very seductive, partly because of its sexual nature, which is always a temptation, a deep temptation, a strong temptation, but partly, too, because it was so uh, present. Sure, we saw God bring us out of Egypt. Sure, we saw God lead us in the desert, but how am I going to get my corn to grow? And the Canaanites had answers for that, you know. Well, you go to the temple and you do this stuff and Baal will do his thing and next thing you know, everything will be fine. And so it was a very, very seductive kind of uh, religious practice that the Israelites were drawn into. And so when we come to somewhere like Psalm, verses, uh, Psalm 106, verse 34 to 40, this is a summary of what happened. Uh, the psalmist says, They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord had commanded them, but mingled with the nations and adopted their customs. They worshipped their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to false gods. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was desecrated by their blood. It was awful. They defiled themselves by what they did, by their deeds, they prostituted themselves. And so, again, you can see how a small compromise gave birth to a major apostasy, a major walking away from the Lord. And again, if we had time, and we don't really this morning, we could explore again just how significant it is, the little choices that we make that have long-term consequences. And I talk with uh, young people, young adults about this all the time. The choices you make today are the memories you're going to live with tomorrow. And a choice that you can make in a moment, perhaps in a moment of impetuous kind of desire, it can have consequences that will echo through your life. And some of those of you who are in the 60, 70, 80 year age, you're nodding your heads, say, I know. And we see it here. And the consequence for the people of Israel was very significant. Judges chapter 2 verses 14 to 15 says, In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. God had told them, if you do this, then this. And God is good to his words. And he was angry. And we might struggle a bit with that idea that God gets angry, but what would it be like if God didn't get angry? Have you ever thought about that? What would it be like if God didn't get upset about stuff, angry about situations? What would it be like if, um, if a parent never got upset or angry with behaviour of a child? 
Some dear friends of ours, I've told this story before, I think, uh, before they had children, determined they were just going to love their children. They had three boys. <laughs> it was God's way of teaching them. <laughs> and they were determined that we're just going to, we will never shout and we'll never get angry, we'll never get upset. And they got to a point where they said, you know what was happening? We were raising monsters because we didn't put the boundaries in place. We never said no. And God, who is a God of love, gets angry because there's boundaries around uh, what he will accept and what he won't accept. We would have to say if God didn't get angry about this situation, he was not a God who kept his word because he would promised the people uh, earlier that if, uh, if their behaviour was this, then there would be consequences and he was consistent with that. But we shouldn't be surprised by God's anger either because it's the price we pay for being loved. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 14, the Lord said, Do not worship any other gods, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Jealousy is actually the flip side of love. It's required where exclusive love is called for. Now that's a little bit hard to grasp perhaps. Let me tell you a story to help illustrate it. It comes from Dale Davis. This is not my story. He wrote some, some notes on the book of Judges, so I'll just read this for you. He says this, Suppose a husband has sad but true evidence that his wife is having an affair with another man. Suppose, for the sake of argument, that the husband, sinner that he is, nevertheless, has been on the whole attentive, devoted and tender towards his wife, and now she's having this affair. What if the husband's reaction was, well, you win some, you lose some, and that's the way it goes? What would you think? If he truly loved his wife, there could be no such nonsense. If lively love was there, he should be upset. He should be jealous. He should be angry. Jealousy is love burst into its proper flame. And Davis goes on to say, now that is the problem with having the God of the Bible. To have a God who loves his people is to have a jealous God. And to have a jealous God is to have an intolerant God. Those are words that we don't use freely. Intolerance is not popular. Love divine, uh, the, the, you might be familiar with that hymn, you know, love divine, words well known from that old hymn is not soft laxity but a blazing intolerance, a jealousy, an absolute claim. Such is the God of Israel, his jealous love makes him faithful in his anger towards you. Who ever heard of love and fidelity like that? You forsake him, Davis says, and he will pursue you in his anger. That's how committed God is in his love. And what we read in Judges chapter 2 as we continue uh, is a statement that's held in tension with another statement. If you've got Judges chapter 2 there, I haven't got it on the screen. Uh, verse 14 is on the screen, but verse 16 is not. Verse 14 says, In his anger God handed them over to raiders who plundered them. Verse 16, Then God raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of these raiders. Isn't that interesting? This God who loves and is a jealous lover, if you like, uh, a God who is intolerant of his people turning to any other God, uh, handed them over, but at the same time he made a way for them to come back. Does that sound familiar? It kind of should because it's the core of the gospel, isn't it? God who cannot tolerate sin made a way for sin to be dealt with. 
And as we've surveyed through this passage this morning, we've seen God's commitment to unity, his commitment to justice, his character of jealousy. And here again, we see uh, his commitment to salvation. He could have just turned his back on the people. He could have walked away from them and said, ta-da, but he didn't. He made a way, and we'll see this time and time again in the midst of their apostasy, time and time for them to come back. And the same is true as we come to the New Testament. It tells us there in 2 Peter 3, 9 that God's desire is that none should perish but all should come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as Lord. Even in the midst of our rebellion, God makes a way for us to come back to him. What good news that is. What a commitment to salvation that is. And the plan of salvation is so simple, it's something that many of you have heard many times, perhaps some of you have never heard it. It's to recognise that we have walked away from God. Like the Israelites of old, we've turned our backs on God and we've embraced the gods of this world, whether it be materialism or the pursuit of success or whatever it might be. And to recognise that sin is at work in us and we can do nothing by ourselves to turn uh, that around, but rely on God to do that, to say to Jesus Christ, Lord, I am sorry, and accept that gift of love that he's given for us in Christ Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that if we believe in him, we might not perish but have everlasting life. That brings us to this communion table this morning where we remember what Jesus did for us, where we remember the great salvation that God has offered for us. And so today as we reflect on this passage, as we reflect on the nature of the character of God revealed here, let me invite you to this table too. And come to this table recognising that it, it reflects an action that God did for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. We couldn't rescue ourselves. We couldn't drag ourselves out of that, uh, that state that we were in. But God has done that work for us. And so come and receive these elements this morning, the bread that reminds us of the body of Christ, the cup that reminds us of the blood of Christ. We're going to pray. I'll invite our music team to come and uh, as, uh, as they play in a few moments, just to stand when you're ready to come and take the elements back to your seat. Don't, um, don't participate in them until we're all back to our seats and then I'll lead you as we do that. But if you know the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, we invite you to participate at this table of communion today. Let's pray as we prepare our hearts. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for what we can learn about who you are from both the Old and the New Testament. We do struggle sometimes, Lord, with the content of the Old Testament, especially when we get stuck in the names of places and people that are so distant from us. And yet these words have been passed on to us through the generation, protected by you, sustained by you, that we might learn from them. And here in this passage today, Lord, we've seen the promises that you have made to your people and the opportunity that was before them, but the compromises that they took and the consequences that they suffered. Father, we would pray that for us, we might seek to walk in obedience to you in an uncompromising manner, a single-minded manner, a manner that will be apart from the world, even though we are in the world, a, part that will, a, a, a manner that will set us apart because uh, 
We prioritise you over other things. We set you as our goal, our desire, our focus, our attention over the things of the world that so easily entrap us. Lord, let us learn from the mistakes of the people from the past. But we recognise too that we are sinners too. And so we come to this table in as much need of grace as anyone before us and anyone after us ever will. Lord, grant today that we might know your love in a special way as we participate in this meal of remembrance and proclamation. Lord, bless this time of quiet, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our team is going to play quietly and let me encourage you as they do just to come forward. Uh, choose whichever side of the table the elements suit you, whether the pre-packaged one, we've got a few of those. We didn't have quite enough this morning for everyone or the more traditional that are there. And then just return to your seats down the centre, back around to the outside. When everyone's back to their seats, we'll share the elements together. In the times while you're waiting to come forward, let me invite you just to pray quietly and seek the presence of the Lord. The process of um, receiving communion this morning was intentional in the sense it wasn't served to you. You had to move to do that and so in a spiritual sense might be considered to be a move towards Christ. We take the bread this morning, the reminder of the body of Christ that was given for us. Let me encourage you to take that and eat in thankfulness for what Jesus has done in going to the cross, allowing his body to be nailed to that tree for us. Let's eat together. And the cup, a reminder of the blood of Christ that was shed for us for in ancient times, Old Testament times, the blood of lambs and goats was shed for the remission of sin. But the blood of Christ shed once for all time, for everybody, forever. We share this cup together in remembrance of him and proclamation of his return. Let's drink together. Lord, we give you thanks again for your love expressed to us so beautifully. Love that was so costly. Love which is jealous, love which is intolerant of us allowing our attention, our affections to be directed elsewhere. You're a God of great fidelity in your relationship. You are focused, you are intentional, you are intensive, you are gracious and you are good. We thank you for our experience of your love poured out. We pray that we might daily know your joy and the blessing of your presence always. We thank you for the opportunity this morning to share this communion meal together and we praise you. Amen. <laughs>